Hey Downtown Church and welcome back to 7 Minute Sunday School. Today we're looking at Exodus 4, 18 through 31. And this is a series of three short, strange sections in the book. And so I thought we might depart from our normal procedure. And if you're willing, just pause the video right now. Go read Exodus 4, 18 through 31 a couple times and identify what strikes you as strange and anything that you read that resonates with or might be in dialogue with or might reveal more about any of the things that we've already seen in Exodus. So take a moment for that now. Now, when we get to Exodus 4, 18 through 31, we can break this down into three scenes. First, having just met with God in the burning bush, God having gotten angry at Moses and said, look, I'm sending you, Aaron, get out of here, go back. It's time to go to Egypt and bring my people out. Moses finally relents, leaves God and goes back to his father-in-law and says to his father-in-law, let me go back to Egypt. It's interesting though, that Moses doesn't tell Jethro, his father-in-law, anything about his encounter with God or the real purpose of this mission on which God is sending him. The text doesn't tell us, but we wonder, is Moses still doubting? Is Moses still wavering over whether God can really be trusted to be who he says he'll be and to do what he says he'll do? We don't know, but what we do know is that in 421, the Lord speaks to Moses again in this sort of high concentration speech. He says, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. There are at least three things that stand out to us as we encounter this. The first is this idea that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. This sounds really strange to us. It sounds like God is making Pharaoh do that for which he'll be punished. And as we unpack this over the course of the next several chapters, we'll discover this isn't the first time or the last time that we run into Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, here God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart, and sometimes we'll read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But elsewhere we'll read about Pharaoh's heart being hard, and in yet other places we'll read about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And if we zoom out a bit, we realize we've already seen the Pharaoh oppress and brutalize God's people, which he will do in new ways before we're told that God will actually harden Pharaoh's heart. So the idea doesn't seem to be that God is forcing Pharaoh to be wicked, but the idea does seem to be that God is in control of everything, including human hearts, and it is dangerous to persist in rebelling against him because at some point God will give us over to the hardness of our own heart. I think that's something of the idea that uh, Exodus is getting at here and it gets at just how dangerous this God is to people who set themselves up against him. But secondly, we get this idea in this short text that Israel is God's firstborn son. God has not just listened to them and heard to them because of their outcry of oppression, but because he loves these people, because he has an intimate relationship with them. And it is this that makes it so dangerous to the Pharaoh to persist in harming them. In fact, it's deadly. As God says to Pharaoh, because you have abused my firstborn son, it will cost you your firstborn son. And as we will discover in the book of Exodus, it will cost Pharaoh his own life. 
It's dangerous to sail past to the point of no return in our sin against God, because not only will God give us over to our sin in some sense, in some cases at least, God is willing to bring just judgment on those who relentlessly abuse his people. But third, right here in this short section of text, we're given a glimpse of why God wants to bring his firstborn son, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, that they may worship me. Now, this is one of those places where it helps to know a little bit about the Hebrew language that our English Bibles translate, because that word worship is the same word for service. And in Exodus, where we've seen the word for service is Pharaoh's harsh service that he put on the people of Egypt. I mean, excuse me, the people of Israel. So this is the place where we realize that Israel's problem is both that they're enslaved to harsh service to the wrong master, Pharaoh, and that God wants to bring them out into good service, worship of him. God's point in liberating his people is not to set them free to follow their own devices, to choose their best life, to find their way in the world. God's purpose in bringing the people out of Egypt is to win for himself worshipers for himself and for his glory. And that idea we'll see again and again in the chapters that follow. Then we have this really weird scenario story where Moses is on the way to Egypt with his wife and son and God shows up and is apparently threatening Moses' life and Zipporah, his wife, saves the day by circumcising Moses' son and uh, putting some of the blood from the circumcision on Moses' feet and God desists in attacking Moses. What's going on here? It's very confusing and I'm not sure I have all the answers. But a couple things stand out. One is Moses hasn't circumcised his son. He's not living yet like an Israelite. He's not yet living like one whose life depends on being a part of the covenant people. This Israelite son, who is the most famous of all Israelites, and yet who, when he shows up in Midian a chapter or two ago, looks like an Egyptian, may yet still be living like one, may yet still be limping between two options, wavering over whether to fully commit himself to God and God's way. And that makes God's presence dangerous, not just for rebellious Pharaoh, but perhaps dangerous for as yet uncommitted Moses. It's dangerous to be present with this God and not fully committed to his covenant way. And another thing that stands out to me about this story is that once again, it's a woman who rescues the day. Not just a woman, a non-Israelite woman who realizes that God's presence demands allegiance, signing up for God's covenant community, and does what it takes to put the sign of God's covenant community on her and Moses' son. Well, finally, this text ends, the story ends with two joyful meetings. One, Moses meets Aaron and finally starts telling the truth about what he's seen in the wilderness. And he joyfully relates what God has done to Aaron. And then Aaron and Moses go to the people in Israel and they tell them the message. And it's beautiful because when the people hear Moses and see the signs, the text tells us they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. The logical response of hearing that God is present and knows our pain and his promise to bring healing is to fall down and worship. So now think back to what you read when you read this text 
and these reflections that we've had together and consider what does this text teach us about God and how does it invite us to think and live and worship God differently as we get to know this God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Thank you.